Welcome back once again to the Ripe Labs podcast. I'm Alan Davies, the Ripe Labs editor, and in this episode, my colleague Anastasia Pack talks to Wim van der Boheide from the University of Glasgow about how we can and why we must reduce the environmental footprint of the internet. There is this narrative that digitalization would actually help us save emissions. And that is a bit of a misleading narrative because the actual reports that say so are typically white papers by interest groups that have a vested interest in promoting digitalization. The chances that digitalization actually helps us are not very great and that it's actually likely that it might harm us. Suppose we, we manage to, to get our act together and in 20 years have reduced emissions sufficiently that our global warming does not go out of control, but then we have a very bright future ahead of us. The global discourse around the Internet tends to focus on its non-physical layers. However, the Internet is a tangible entity that depends on real infrastructure to keep it running. We often talk about how digital technologies help us become more efficient and sustainable, but say less about their environmental impact. Our guest this time on the Ripe Labs podcast is Wim van der Bauchide, and he believes that growth in computing emissions is unsustainable. And as a society, we need to start treating computational resources as finite. In this episode, we speak with Wim about the carbon footprint of the Internet, the data centers, the digital divide and unsustainable business models. Do listen to the end to also get some tips on what we as users can do to help curb the climate crisis. Hello, Wim. Thank you very much for joining the Ripe Labs podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Let's start. Uh, So, first thing first, looking at your biography, I saw that you worked in core networking, you were design engineer, sysadmin, technology R&D engineer, and then you switched to the research domain. So now you are the lead of the low carbon and sustainable computing activity. How did you become interested in this topic? Yeah, I've been interested in in the problem of climate change, well, interested and engaged for a very long time. Before I moved to to the UK, I was already a member of an environmental organization in my city. I actually got into academia a bit by accident. It's not an accident, it's a choice, of course, but what it is is my wife and I had decided we wanted to move to Scotland because it's a beautiful country (laughs) for no other reason than that. And so um, we both looked for jobs here and um, I thought, that it might be easier to find a job in academia than a job in industry for somebody with my skill set. And so that's how I got my um, uh, research function as a a postdoc on core networking, uh, optical core networking. With my expertise as a chip designer, there came an opening at Glasgow University for somebody who could um, do research and lecture on systems on chip with networks on chip. So that's how I got into computing science in Glasgow. And then from there, I got ever more interested in things like systems and programming languages and compilers. And um, always with the view of getting the system to be as energy efficient as possible. But then 
several years ago, I got promoted to professor. The, the nice thing about being professor is that you have a bit more leverage in the organization. And so I used that leverage to create the Low Carbon and Sustainable Computing Group, which before I couldn't have done. Also because it was the right time because it was COP26 um, oh, okay. and uh, everybody in Glasgow uh, was very aware of the, the climate emergency at that time. I just grasped the moment, right? And um, th that's how I created the research group. So now most of my research focuses on low carbon computing, but actually most of my work focuses on awareness raising. Well, but that's great that you grasped the moment of uh, COP26. And yeah. uh, now I think it's quite a unique speci specialization. So diving a bit to the topic, uh, the internet and the technologies are now in almost every aspect of our lives and uh, found that approximately 53.6% of the global population use the internet and the carbon footprint of all our gadgets, the internet systems supporting them account for almost 4% of the global mm -hmm. greenhouse emissions. And this is according to the estimates by the SHIFT project. So can you please dive into the uh, topic mm -hmm. of the environmental footprint of the internet? And maybe you could also bring some examples from the networking industry and also from the perspective of the end users. It's interesting that you quote a different source than the one I use and that they arrive at the same overall figure of 4% for the combination between uh, embodied carbon emissions and emissions from use. Um, that shows that the figure is probably the best that we can uh, come up with as an estimate. Uh, the the most divergent is, I think, in the in the projections of how it might rise, and that's where the problem is. Because if the internet would stay at four percent, the emissions would go down, and there would not be a problem. Even if they would not go up, four percent would not constitute a problem. But of course, that wouldn't help our situation. Most emissions are actually surprisingly uh, from the home. So there's a report um, from the Carbon Trust in the UK uh, looking at this kind of things. And they actually quoted the report, if I'm not mistaken, by the ITU, tried to calculate this. And their estimate was that 54% of emissions occur in the home, are incurred in the home. Um, the networks are responsible for 27% and data centers for 19%. This is interesting because it's not what people intuitively would think if they think about it. Most people don't realize that the, the home component is such a large component. So you mentioned so now that it's mostly like home and the behavior. Mm -hmm. And maybe so what about overall tech industry, like the, the internet infrastructure industry yeah. and their um, footprint? Yeah, well, so the footprint of, of the the core network well, the core, meaning everything, not the home and not the data centers, is about 90, 29%, according to that report by uh, the Carbon Trust. The problem, from my perspective, is actually not so much with the current footprint, but with the growth that is projected. Um, and in particular, because there is this narrative that digitalization would actually help us save emissions. And that is a bit of a misleading narrative because... The actual reports that say so are um, typically white papers by interest groups that have a vested interest in promoting um, digitalization. There are several studies that to analyze critically these reports and their conclusion is that 
they are actually entirely not valid in terms of a narrative and that um, the chances that digitalization actually helps us are not very great and that it's actually likely that it might harm us. But nevertheless, our digital footprint grows and that leads to um, sooner or later a need to upgrade the the capacity of the core networks, which is a big step change in in emissions because the the core network is not elastic. So we we saw that during the pandemic, it was actually the best possible illustration of, of that before people weren't entirely sure, but after the pandemic, um, results came out. It's very clear that, uh, like, I, I looked at um, Telefonica, uh, Vodafone UK, and BT UK, and for all of them, the picture is the same. Their data usage g- during the, especially the lockdown period, mm-hmm. doubled, and their emissions stayed the same. Capacity was simply already there, and that sending extra data through the network does not re- result in extra emissions. So the elasticity is very, very low. Um, and uh, that means that as long as there is enough capacity, you can use it up and it does not increase the footprint of the core network. Um, but after a while, the extra capacity is needed. And then in a big step of extra um, infrastructure, you get a, a huge rise in emissions. And that's actually for the core network, the most dangerous side of it, let's say. But I mean, to be fair, there is a very active community uh, amongst the IETF and uh, Internet Architecture Board Mm -hmm. now looking at what people in the core can do to reduce the footprint of that network, because after all, 30% of the total is considerable. And if if it could be lowered, Mm -hmm. it would be very good. And um, in particular on the... uh, wireless network site it seems like it will it will likely improve a lot because um previously the wireless networks were also not elastic uh, and they they use a lot of power uh, and therefore they are actually a lot less carbon efficient than the wired network but um the the later generations so the ones that we're rolling out now um they actually are able to monitor the state of the devices connected to the circuits on on the the cells and uh, react and adapt the power in response to that. And that will make a big difference in in that side. And because actually the wireless uh, network growth is I think a little bit steeper than the wired network growth. It means that the overall picture will probably be uh, positive in, in, in that sense. But does I it mean, mean that... it's it, it positive in the sense that it, it will become more efficient, right? So efficiency is good, but it's only good if it does not result to actually uh, heavier use as a, as a consequence of the efficiency. Yes. But does, does it mean that then the old infrastructure needs to be replaced? Well, that happens, right? Uh, we in the UK, and I think I checked for Belgium and a few other countries in the Netherlands is similar. Um, they are phasing out 3G now. Um, so uh, most countries try will will start sunsetting, um, as they call it, 3G in 2023, 2024. Um, and then um, the plans to uh, phase out 4G are already um, in place. Uh, 3G is an odd one out because um, a lot of um, SCADA infrastructure, so control infrastructure, yeah. relies on 2G. 
And so this will probably finally, finally survive us. Um, but Tucci is, of course, not a big problem in the sense that it, it is very low bandwidth use. It's simply yeah. that it is you can't simply remove it or a lot of uh, utilities like electricity and 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 so on um they couldn't control their substations anymore and and so they need time to up upgrade that infrastructure the problem at the moment is that that we are going to have for a while uh, concurrently 3g 4g 5g and maybe even 6g and that's yeah. very bad right um so maybe the um the sunsetting should be a bit more aggressive i suppose but the problem with that is it's you know that's what you see when you start looking at these things this is complicated because then you force people to buy new phones and these yeah. phones have a huge carbon footprint and larger than the network and therefore um the gains of having a more efficient core might be offset by all the embodied carbon from the new phones therefore the planning needs to be done quite carefully yeah. <laughs> if you don't want to end up with a systemic worse result the decisions are not taken on that on those grounds very much. It's no longer profitable because the data usage of a certain network has dropped too low compared to the other one. So we're going to stop using it. The use of 3G will be mostly dominated by people who have an older phone rather than by people who have a new phone, but somehow live in an environment where there is no 4, 4G. Well, at least in the UK, that will be more the picture. But so there, if you see that 3G becomes therefore a very small proportion, it means old phones are a small proportion. And um, it's not a big problem uh, to let those, that, I mean, in terms of emissions, to let yeah. that small proportion of people have to buy a new phone. But yeah, it needs to be done carefully. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's can, like uh, a weighing pros and cons. Yes, to be very absolutely, careful about absolutely. Yes. Um, there are other things like, um, I'm not a, a huge expert on this anymore, but um, if you look where the emissions are in the wired core, the optical routers are actually very efficient. I looked at that. So energy consumption per bit is, is really low for an optical router. So that means that most of the emissions from the core um, must be actually uh, where they do the last, um, not last mile, but before that, because there they have a lot of um, copper still. And yeah. then, so they go from optical to copper and, um, and those uh, stations tend to be quite old now. Uh, I think they are actually probably responsible for a large part of the emissions of the core in that sense if you move to fiber to the the cabinet at least um eventually these will be phased out and that will also reduce emissions of of the core after a while after the embodied carbon of the new infrastructure has been taken into account yeah. i mean it's it's there is also embodied carbon from digging up the roads and putting in the new fiber. Right? Yeah. On the whole, um, I, I really, I was really pleased to see. I, I participate in this e-impact workshop, and um, it's really nice to see people, um, both in industry and academia, and in the standardization organization and so on, being enthused and trying to 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 make things better on the the climate side. I find that very positive. Yeah. That's great to hear. So you actually touched upon the my next question a little bit before, uh, and it's about uh, the narrative in the media that not long time ago, the narrative was the, about the positive impact of digitalization mm -hmm. on the environment. We save paper, we be, a lot of processes become energy efficient, resources efficient. And yet, uh, as you mentioned before, there is a clear evidence of the negative impact of the internet consumption on the environment. So this is like a very complex topic. 
Yeah, you already mentioned a little bit some of the misconceptions. Can you share mm. more of the most common misconceptions about the impact of the digital digitalization on the environment? I don't know if it's the most common, but certainly the most dangerous misconception is that the digitization digitalization will lead to uh, will solve the problem that uh, we can rely on the digitalization to get us out of the climate problem. That is based on the fact that some of those studies actually showed huge amounts of um, avoided emissions as a result of, of digitalization, like 10 gigatons of CO2 equivalent uh, per year. And the total of the world is like 55 gigatons. And But it, it turns out that this is actually not sound at all uh, scientifically. The, the methodology is, is really not good. But um, the narrative has found some, well, it's a very attractive narrative, right? Um, unfortunately, it's not correct. Apart from that, I think most people don't realize that it's actually the making of the devices that uh, has the main carbon cost, and therefore digitalization incurs a cost of more devices um, in, in all respects, right? So not just phones, but IoT, um, more internet infrastructure, and so on. Well, a lot of people don't seem to realize that uh, making those um, those components is is hugely uh, polluting. Not just actually in CO two emissions. The whole uh, mining of uh, elements needed to make the devices is also very problematic. The water usage is really problematic, and so that that uh, is not very much in, in the news. That's not yeah. that's not under uh, on, on people's radar. Let's say so that that is one. I think if there is one message that that should get out is people should use devices for longer and use fewer devices. I think that's probably the, the biggest misconception, apart from the fact that what I already said, the network is actually not very elastic, so it's always mm -hmm. on. So whether you use Zoom um, for a meeting with video or not makes not much difference, makes no difference really on the network, makes a small difference in the data center and a small difference on your home computer. And there's another misconception, but it's a bit, it's nothing so much to do with digitization, but it is important because um, a lot of the high tech companies specifically uh, make claims about how green they are in terms of renewables. And um, so people therefore think that renewables will help us, uh, will get us out of the problem. And yeah. unfortunately, I mean, I don't like to be the bringer of bad news, but this is not the case. Um, so at the moment, renewables are not replacing fossil fuels. Uh, so the emissions are actually not coming down. They have gone up globally. Um, so that, that shows that the renewables, although they are being rolled out more rapidly, they mm -hmm. are not replacing existing um, fossil fuel generation. Th that is the other misconception. We, shouldn't, we can't rely on renewables to yeah. save us. It, and the same with nuclear energy. Um, so the problem with nuclear energy well, there's many problems with nuclear energy. Yeah, um, the history but, knows about it. Well, yes, but let's say th there are reasons because of the dangers uh, and the, and the waste that it causes and so on. But suppose you you ignore that or you you uh, think that can be solved, um, it's just not economical. I mean, basically, all, all nuclear energy is very heavily subsidized. That's one thing. And the other thing is that it's very slow to roll out. If we plan start planning now for a new nuclear power plant, the the soonest we could have it is in 20 years, and more likely with the way these things go, it will be in 30 years. Yeah. But in 20 years, we should have reduced our emissions from 55 gigatons to 13 globally. 
So we can't rely, we can't wait for all that nuclear and and, and renewables to 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 do that for us. Um, we must essentially re reduce the, the energy consumption of our current lifestyle. And that's where I think we have an important role as as engineers and scientists, because usually if you make things more efficient, at least there is a potential to reduce emissions. It does not necessarily happen. We know that there is the rebound effect and all that. But uh, at, if we are inefficient, we're, we're definitely wasting energy. <laughs> but to summarize, it's mostly the devices the making things yeah. it's very costly and the other thing is that renewables really are not at the moment reducing emissions and ro the rollout is too slow so um to get to actual zero uh, fossil fuel generation we will definitely not be there most of the projections say we'll be at 60 to 70 percent mm. renewables in tw in 2040 and that's not nearly enough to uh, help us I think your argument actually, I want to expand like two different topics on your argument. And the first one would be about the digital divide. And why? Because mm -hmm. you mentioned uh, yeah, that the, our consumption is growing. And now let's say if we just focus on the Western Europe where already Europe itself or like the developed nations that are using these tools. Uh, so they are having access to all the IoT devices, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that are uh, requiring a lot of energy consumption. And then we have uh, the countries that yet are not there, but they are progressing towards a more digitalized and connected, mm -hmm. uh, let's say, environment from in this sense. So once on the one side we're trying to reduce our consumption, but on the other side there is a uh, many many nations that are still running behind and trying to become up to speed with this certain level of progress in the technological mm. perspective. So it seems a bit uh, difficult. So do you have some thoughts about it? I see what you mean. I mean, I'm advocating to be more frugal with, with our digital resources. Um, that doesn't mean that I'm advocating that the rest of the world that doesn't have them shouldn't get them. That is a different issue to my mind. And because the the key message is we should see those digital um, resources as finite and to be used uh, only as as we need them and to be used um, as efficient as possible and the scale of the deployment does not change that message that doesn't really worry me the reasons for the the divide the digital divide are very much the same as the reasons for the economic divide so it, it is not as if you could solve the digital divide by solving the economic divide and um, the economic divide is also largely reflected in the carbon footprint divide if you will if you look at it purely from the, the digital divide perspective let's say uh, all else being taken care of there wouldn't really be a problem i think i mean we, we could everybody could get digital um, connectivity uh, without ruining the planet that um, I don't I think that is that is a possibility because you, you mentioned that already 50% of, of the population in yeah. the world has internet access so if we double that that does not necessarily mean that our emissions would double there is no no need for for it, uh, that going that far I think especially if um, I mean of course if you would expect that everybody every single individual, let's say, would be able to have as much as the richest have, 
then that mm. would be deeply problematic. But if everybody has enough, <laughs> that's a different issue. And you can say, yeah, but what's enough? Um, but there are actually, um, for example, in the UK, uh, when that's the place that I know best, of course, because that's where I live, people look at what is the minimum connectivity and minimum standard for uh, digital equipment that we should be able to guarantee to people. Okay, they, they, they aren't there yet, but there is a given thought to that. The big difference in, in so the big risks for ICT is, is that growth is driven um, by the companies that benefit from the growth, not for reasons that the end users need it, but for reasons that they are pushed into adopting it. And that's an interesting story because in a year we have seen the hype grow and now people are fortunately are already starting to get a bit disillusioned with it. The companies that push it completely ignore the carbon cost um, because it is not um, not their concern. That's a very different issue from giving the whole world de uh, decent internet access. Right? Yeah. <laughs> we could do that cheaply, let's say in, in, in energy terms, in emissions terms, yeah. whereas um, if we have uh, more than linear growth of adoption of deep um, uh, deep learning, large language models, um, that would do a lot more damage. I mean, I know that there is a big digital divide and there is also, unfortunately, I, I think um, we talked about that previously, yeah. that um, part of it is is because the, the large tech companies have managed to create lock-in in many countries yeah. that lock people into their services because it's cheaper than giving them general access. I think that leads to more of a, a divide yeah. um, because this is a divide in the freedom to, to access yeah. information, right? Um, but th that is not really a technological issue. That is an issue of power imbalance. Yeah. yeah. And since we mentioned this power imbalance in big companies, I want to also touch upon the data centers uh, mm -hmm. topic and because it's a very core part of internet infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So big tech companies operate huge data centers. And I read the report uh, by Google. And for instance, they brought example that uh, many of their data centers are powered by sustainable, but re by renewable energy. Some of the data centers that are not, they compensated uh, energy wise somehow. Mm -hmm. So can you tell me a bit more about this model and how, in your opinion, sustainable it is or not sustainable? Yeah, a lot of companies make those claims. So we increasingly need more energy. Yeah. And, uh, but it doesn't help us that that energy is clean. Uh, that just means that the dirty energy is for other people. If, if uh, the big companies like Google and Microsoft and Amazon claim renewables, and usually they, they do that by by actually having private generation. So they're actually making sure that they have large um, solar wind farms that are theirs. Well, but that doesn't help the big picture because it simply means nobody else can use that energy and they use it to do more rather than to actually make things better. And I mean, that's understandable because that's, that's how business works. Uh, it's profit driven and there is no cost in, uh, so they don't have to pay for the fact that they cause emissions indirectly. If you look at an area in which electricity can be traded, like for example, let's say the continental US, then uh, it's the uh, carbon intensity of generation of that area that determines the emissions. And it does not matter how many renewables given player uses uh, if they don't 
if they don't actually um, use those renewables to replace existing uh, fossil fuel generation, then they are not uh, improving the situation. And unless you have 100% renewables, this um, this is the case. And because what we see now is that the phasing out of the fossil fuels is very slow, it would take a very long time for that. So mm. it suits a company very well to claim that they are green. In fact, this is really not to my mind, this is not true. It's simply saying, uh, I'm rich enough to afford all the renewables and the rest of you, uh, you can pollute and uh, we are clean. The other claims is, uh, okay, but we will offset our emissions or we will um, do carbon capture and storage. The story is actually quite simple. There is a very good article on the conversation about that. An expert calculates how much storage capacity there is in the biomass in the whole earth if we would uh, plant the whole earth full of trees and how much that would actually help if you would do that and assuming that all those trees survive and so on and that it's 100 efficient and you plant everywhere full you could capture uh, 20 gigatons of co2 in all the biomass in the earth no no it's something like two years of, of global emissions that's not 20 that's more like 100 but then of course that's that's it captured uh, and then um there's no extra because the trees are already planted and you have filled the whole earth with trees, there is no extra trees to be planted. It's not a bad thing, uh, offsetting, but this should be done when we have done all the rest. So when we've reduced our emissions through all other means and there is still a bit left, because there always will be, then we use offsetting. Then we might even use carbon capture and storage. The problem with that is not fundamental. The problem is that they have been working on it for a very long time and there's nothing that works at scale. Suppose we, we manage to um, to get our act together and in 20 years have re reduced emissions sufficiently that our global warming does not go out of control, not above two degrees. But then we have a very bright future ahead of us because by then we will have renewables and we will have CCS and we will have uh, um, offsetting. We will have a much greener planet. I mean, literally in terms of biomass, it would be brilliant, but we first have to get there, right? Yeah. Because if we don't get there, then climate change itself will destroy all that because we won't be able to plant the trees. They will be destroyed by droughts, by floods, by fires. Mm -hmm. um, and, and and simply a lot of parts of the earth will become so hot that you can't even grow trees anymore there. I mean, I saw a study from the actuaries in the UK that they, they just like bluntly state that, yeah, well, by 2070 or maybe 2090, global GDP will will have been halved because of climate change. We, normally, we're talking about economic growth of a few percent, right? They say yeah. it will be like uh, a drop of a factor of two. So it means there is no growth. There is the worst ever contraction. And yeah. that's like the biggest argument of saying, you know, this you have to do something about the current economic model or there will be nothing left for your economic model. Yeah. Um, but if we, I mean, so there's very good arguments to do something and we have all the means to do it. And if we do it, then we would have a really bright future. So I, I think, like, why not do it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, convince every every decision maker, then I think it's going to be tough. <laughs> well, I know because the, the decision makers... Um, have a much shorter horizon and yeah. uh, it's much easier for them to ignore the issues but yeah that already it becomes harder and harder to ignore and yeah. you get into the the realm of um 
Yes, okay. We had unprecedented heat and unprecedented fires and unprecedented droughts and unprecedented flooding. But actually, that's no reason to change the way we do things. Um, yeah. That's, I mean, that, that becomes a kind of blindness, right? It's still attractive to say, yeah, these things are going to get worse, but that will be after our time. Uh, yeah. or after our time in government mostly um so then it will be the opposition's problem to deal with on the other hand i don't think this this is um fundamental and uh, unchangeable i was thinking that of, we're moving maybe a bit away from the topic but actually i just imagined myself let's say i'm some person in the government and i want to see the results of my work within my life span let's say yeah if we are talking about the future of the planet and about the time in a hundred years the impact of the small decision that it can make and maybe sometimes just it's a click of like yeah but i want to see my success that my decision brought something but i guess the environmental impact is not something like you know i just planted a tree and now there no. is a cleaner air let's suppose that you are the politician who can claim that on their watch uh, carbon emissions globally dropped by 50%. You know, you would go in, in the history books forever. Okay, the effects of climate change, because of the, the basically the thermal constant of the earth and so on, they will take a long time and they will come. We, we are already there. Um, and seeing how bad it gets will take a long time too. But dropping emissions could be done really rapidly. And it is a very measurable um, objective. It's very clear and it doesn't even have to cost us economically. I mean, it's like with renewables, it's very, people have um, seen, I mean, the energy companies know it's the cheapest form of, of making profit. So obviously they're all for renewables. We don't really have to push them to install renewables anymore because, well, it's cheapest makes the highest profit. So they yeah. do it, right? So this works. I, I am really... Um, positively surprised by so I, i'm i've been aware of climate change for 40 years in the yeah. first in the first 30 years nothing has happened in the last 10 years an enormous amount of change in awareness has occurred i mean it's incredible nobody even if you're a climate change denier now you're really in a minority right um you can you can try and say that it's uh, maybe it won't be as bad that's a different issue but um I mean, we we get our like uh, um, environmental protection agency on the radio saying, yeah, okay, we will get a lot more um, heavy rain because of climate change. Yeah, I mean, this is like mainstream now. So this is this is a, a huge change in about ten years time. Well, uh, we I think we've talked enough about the problems, but <laughs> very very <laughs> big problems I can see, and I want to now focus uh, more on the solutions and how we can what we can yeah. do to help curb the climate crisis. Before that, I want to actually talk a bit about your work and uh, mm -hmm. in particular about the term that you coined, frugal computing. Yes. So what does frugal computing mean? This term was motivated by the observation that until recently we have treated computing as an infinite resource because of Moore's law mostly because we had a doubling in capacity and in speed. There was definitely this feeling that there was unlimited growth in compute resources. And um, when there is unlimited growth, there is no need to save on the resources. This is never the case. There is no such thing as unlimited growth. And especially if you look at the, so the, the related um, environmental cost, of course, um, 
there, there is a limit on uh, uh, um, on the growth, but also fundamentally, technologically, there are limits on the growth. And so the it's what they call um, the free lunch is over, meaning um, <laughs> the the growth in in capacity and and speed, and especially uh, is no longer there as it was in in two until 2010 or so but the problem is that moore's law has made us used to this idea that um we can simply buy a faster machine and we don't have to be efficient and also it has made us used to the idea that there will be a new thing in a year and a half that we have to buy so it really encourages the consumerism as well as um not encouraging the, the uh, efficiency and um so i wanted to make clear that Computing is just as any other resource is finite, and therefore um, it should not be used um, thoughtlessly. So I call it frugal computing. With frugal, I mean if a, if a resource is finite, you should use it only when you need it and then as efficiently as possible. It's a bit like saying, okay, um, your water resource is finite. Well, you'll have to save water sometimes. It's, it's kind of that idea. Uh, it's just that, of course, with compute resource, it's not so visible that it's finite. The whole concept does imply that you make decisions about what you need, because uh, if you say, I will only use the compute I need, then, well, that's, that depends on how you define your needs, right? It's not just about the time-bound resources, so the use uh, of the, the machines, it's also about making them. And so in terms of uh, carbon footprint efficiency, it means using them for longer. And so again, we can help, we can make sure that things last for longer um, and are usable for longer. And actually, there's no reason why they shouldn't really improve even. The idea that you need a new computer to do better compute is not correct. We can be, we can become a lot better at software yeah. um, and do better things with the same hardware. There is a nice paper about that uh, called Room at the Top that actually explores all these things. Because long ago, Richard Feynman, a famous physicist, he had this talk, Room at the Bottom, where he talked about how miniaturizing electronics would leave us with such huge capacity for compute. And that's essentially like he, he predicted the IC uh, revolution and Moore's law uh, the consequence of that, right? This paper from people at MIT is saying, okay, but there is no longer any room at the bottom, um, but there is plenty of room at the top. But that actually is a different type of room. It says it, it is actually the same message as I have. We need to be better at our job. We need to actually do things more efficiently because now, in a way, we have, uh, as researchers, we have a marvelous opportunity because the excuse of buying a new machine is no longer there. If we want efficiency, we'll have to be smarter. <laughs> and of course, that's nothing that researchers like more, right? And this really, I mean, the paper basically identifies all the domains in which there is still uh, potential for improvement. And that includes actually also the software practice of making sure that um, software for older devices is maintained and uh, there are security patches and so on. Right now, we don't have that practice. So there is a lot of work for the software engineering community as well. That, that's kind of the corollary of the frugal computing is that it is an opportunity for researchers and engineers to, um, to excel, let's say. <laughs> Undoubtedly, the, there is, will still be some improvement in hardware efficiency for the next few decades. It's hard to say because we are reaching the the limit of the silicon um, technology approach, 
and there is no clear contender for what comes next yeah. and so um i think there will be a period of stagnation for maybe 20 years or so before the next um best solution uh, comes around and that could actually be a, a very dramatically different thing that if if by then society is aware that we should do things more from a carbon efficiency perspective then we could select a technology that is that has the best potential for that and um, there are definitely candidates. Well, I mean, I don't know whether I will still be there, but I, I can see that the, the the idea of frugal computing from the technology side would be yeah. eminently realizable. From the the societal side, I also think so because some of these problems are actually of our own making. Many people don't necessarily want a new phone, but their phone is left behind. No, no more security updates, right? Um, and it's a hassle to get a new one. Uh, for I mean, some people, of course, like their gadgets and they always want to upgrade, but I don't think that's the, the majority. A lot of people would really like that the phone just works. And the business change is also not huge because it requires only a small change in business model to make it more service-based so that your phone, um, rather than you know necessitating um, the the profit on the hardware sell, you have a kind of well, you already have a, con a contract with most people have with their mobile provider, but you could have the same type of contract. It would probably be even part of it with your um, hardware software provider. I mean, it already exists in other businesses that are not mobile. But uh, you know, this made me think of one company that uh, makes this yearly releases of their new phones and devices and people are just being crazy about it. So I, I mean, when you were saying that people don't want new phones, but the amount of people staying in the queues to get this new released uh, phone. This, this would be Apple, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm trying to be diplomatic here. So. <laughs> no, but, but it's, it, I, I think it's okay to name it for the reason that um, Tim Cook sent a letter to his investors to warn them of the fact that people don't want this anymore and they will have to change, that uh, people don't buy new phones as quickly anymore. Um, they see this, it's a very clear trend, and so they will adapt. They have to, but this is great, right? Yeah, it <laughs> means yeah, in a way is is consumer driven change so even apple although i know you're you're right people were queuing and so on but apple is worried that they don't queue enough for all that they do give rather long support on their software they uh, it's six years i think for most iphones um this is better than most of the competition in fact it should be easier for apple to move to a longer use model than for the others because already they have a longer cycle for for uh, maintaining the software so yeah, um, I know they are still, at the moment, they're very much like, we do these big shows to make you buy new stuff. But um, this letter that that uh, Tim Cook sent to, to the investors was, was very stark. It's not possible really for them, I think, to change the consumer's mind once this has started. So yeah. probably what they will do is shift their business model a little bit so yeah i think even there there's some good signs you know <laughs> well, i think our conversation made me feel very positive and hopeful but uh i like in one of your interviews you actually mentioned that your vision is utopian so yes, yes. is the goal unachievable or there are actually some solutions that uh, the companies let's say in the networking business for example can implement and maybe for the last question yeah, would yeah. be what we as end users can do in the first place well my vision is utopian because visions have to be i think there is a difference between a vision and then the actual 
plan for change. It is fine to aim for uh, a utopian model of society uh, because if you don't aim that high, you're certainly not going to get there, I think. Maybe I'll do the end users first. Um, I thought about this, and this is actually quite interesting. On the technological side, you can do things, but as an end user, if you want to reduce your carbon footprint, there are much easier ways that are not technological. Like um, if you're still eating meat, stop eating meat. That would probably be the biggest change you can make. It doesn't hurt you at all. It's even uh, arguably uh, might be better for your health. <laughs> and uh, it has a huge impact on carbon footprint. But um, if you stay on the tech side, it's mostly that like... Um, Think twice before you buy something new and um, think twice about the usage as well. Um, because although I say that, I mean, it's clear that watching um, video uh, does not affect the energy consumption um, if the of the network. If the demand for video increases even more, then the network will require a capacity upgrade and that will cause a lot of emissions. So we still have a reason to not um, increase our use of, of uh, in particular, uh, digital media um, for that reason. If we don't want to force the network operators into another capacity upgrade. I suppose that's probably the main things you can do because it's the embodied carbon that dominates all the, the other things like okay, sure, it's fine to switch off your router at night, and I do that myself, um, but that doesn't really uh, change mm. much to your electricity bill um, because most likely um, your Hoover and your washing machine will dominate, <laughs> something yeah. like that. Right? So you have to look at where the, the real gains are, and longer use of devices is where the real gains are. On For the, the network operators, like I said, there is a lot of very good ideas in the community uh, I think the, the important thing, if I was a network operator and my investors would say it's time to be uh, sustainable because there is this is how it's moving, actually. There are, um, especially institutional investors, are now increasingly looking at sustainability of their investments. And so that's a very big driver for change because... Um, a company is beholden to its investors, right? And the institutional investors usually have the majority of the shares combined. Yeah, and so assuming that um, such a, that the board of investors says you have to be more sustainable, then the first thing to do for a company is to do a very thorough life cycle analysis of their entire um, business, and then create a few scenarios for strategies and model them um, with the view of sustainability. But at the moment, you know, you see that most companies, when they do this kind of modeling, um, they restrict it to scope one or two emissions and not never scope three, which is actually where most of the emissions are. So I think that that is what I would see as the biggest change that is needed because it's a bit dishonest um, to ignore the, the biggest part of the emissions because they're so uh, so to speak not in within your scope um, but you, you're the cause of them then you should be responsible once you've done that analysis you will know um, how you can run your business profitable and sustainable at the same time right? and this is actually not specific for the networking industry this is presumably how any company should should approach it Great. Uh, you mentioned about digital media, so I hope our passionate listeners will forgive us for using it for the sake of awareness. Thank you very much for sharing your knowledge with us, Wim. Thank you very much for uh, having me.